Good evening. Glad to see you all here as we continue our Politically Incorrect series. Those of you coming in, just kind of make yourselves comfortable. Come on in. Uh, let me say a prayer for us, and we'll just jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Thanks for the freedom that we have to gather in this nation to discuss your word and how it impacts our world, how it impacts our nation. I thank you for the blessings you've showered in all of our lives, and I thank you for this community. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I tell you this every week, but those, that's the number to text your questions to. It's also printed on your handout. So, and I apologize, we're not able to answer all the questions. I mean, we're not even able to answer a tenth of them. And so, but please don't think that we're not interested in that, but I think Laura does a good job of consolidating them into maybe the top few that we can answer. She would say it's because my answers are long-winded and there isn't time to answer very many, but I'm pretty sure she's wrong about that. But don't turn her mic on yet. Well, we are talking about politically incorrect, and I wanted to give you, I've shown you several quotes. This is another good one. If Christianity is actually true, it will be offending and correcting us and our society somewhere. It has always throughout time. That's true historically. I tell you that because I want to remind you what we're trying to do here. You realize we're not talking specifically about current events. This isn't one of the you know, television talk show type things. We're really trying to think go to the Bible and pull out the biblical ideas. Let those things shape our mind. As Romans 12, 2 says, that we will no longer conform to this pattern of this world, but will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In other words, what does God have to say? What does the word of God have to say? And how does it guide us as we speak into the public square? And part of that process is as we go back to God's word, it's like he's always pruning a little bit. He's always reshaping our thinking. So if you come through this series without being maybe convicted or forced to think through some things, whatever your political position it is, every one of us should, should feel that way. My goal is for all of us to be convicted and let God's word shape us, but not so much that you decide to shoot the messenger. So you kind of see, kind of see where I'm going here on this. Basically, we want to look for some common ground. I would say if the, if the Bible never convicts what we're thinking, one of two things happen. Either you are Jesus Christ, and if you think that, please come up and see me tonight because we have some counselors that would like to talk to you, or B, you have created a God who thinks a lot like you do. So hopefully we'll all get convicted a little bit and let God shape us. Let him work on our heart, let him work on our mind. These are our topics, I'm putting this up every week just so you can see where we're going. Last time we talked about poverty, welfare, and health care, and I put a quote on, the, on your handout to remind you, because you had an assignment last week to, to put a face on poverty, to, to pick one thing we could do. I'm convinced that we will not make great progress on poverty until we realize that the more we delegate our compassion to government programs, the less we actually feel. We have to find a way to put a face on poverty. We have to find a way to make it personal to us in some small way. So we talked about that. Unfortunately, the series has been pretty timely, and I wish it weren't. But we also talked about terrorism and oppression a few weeks ago, immigration and refugees, and then, of course, the tragic events this week with bombs in New York and New Jersey, uh, stabbings in St. Cloud, Minnesota, uh, 
uh, despite the initial reaction of, oh, this isn't terrorism, of course it is indeed terrorist-inspired events. One thing, I will say this, because I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you think about the history of terrorism, it's really evolved quite a bit. In the beginning, think back to 9-11, and you see large-scale efforts to inflict casualties in a very big public way. And so you saw you know, the USS Cole and the 9-11, and you see those kinds of events, and the world reacted to those things. And I think America reacted very well to keep us safe after 9-11 and did some really smart things. Then you see the rise of ISIS, Al-Qaeda first, but then ISIS comes along and you see a caliphate. And the face of terrorism changed into really almost like a nation state. And so it was a different And we're struggling with that right now in Syria and Iraq. And I don't know that uh, the world has figured out a way to handle that nearly as effectively. But what you're seeing now is a third phase of evolution, which is probably even more insidious, and that is inspiring and equipping terrorism, small acts of terrorism around the world. And that can be done and defended, and very difficult to defend against, but you basically see people being converted, being inspired by this ideology, then equipped. You can, the website that ISIS and Al-Qaeda put out will tell you everything you want to know about how to make a bomb and how to kill as many people as possible. So you see terrorism coming into another phase. And I think this one's going to be difficult for us to combat, but it ties into this idea of immigration and terrorism. It's the policies that we're going to use to combat those things. How does a government keep its people safe? And so I think the things we're talking about are front and center in the news. Not all terrorism is Islamic, either historically or today, but much of what we are seeing happening today is being fueled by a radical form of Islam. And so you can expect to continue to hear more discussion about that in our political, in our political realm. Well, let's move on, talk about election 2016. Okay, this is, ang- every week I have a theme, as you probably noticed, this is angry Donald, angry Hillary week. These are angry pictures. Expect to see more of this because the race is tightening up. It's uh, the New York Times, Combined national polling, I checked it yesterday, 45 Hillary, 42 Donald. You've got a debate coming up Monday. You see more incidents in the world and expect to see more faces that look like that. I think we're going to see a little more anger in this, uh, kind of a little more heat in this. Also check the polls on how many Americans say our country's on the right track and it continues to remain below a third. And so you see widespread dissatisfaction Really, I'm going to interpret this as our nation struggling to figure out a way to deal with our problems and our perception of our problems, whether they're economic or they're terrorism or they're crime or whatever they may be. And I think it's a perfect time for Christians to go speak the truth, the hope, and the love of God into the world in a very meaningful and concrete way. And so that's what we want to talk about is how do we speak concretely. But first... I want to give you some words of wisdom for Mr. Jeff Foxworthy, because we have some tense things to talk about tonight. But first, I want to, this idea of political correctness is just made for Jeff Foxworthy. Here's an example. If you can get arrested for hunting or fishing without a license, but not for entering and remaining in the country illegally, you might live in a nation that was founded by geniuses and is run by idiots. Yeah, that's... 
Political correctness is either going to frustrate you or it's going to be funny, so let's laugh a little bit. If you have to get your parents' permission, this one's sad, to go on a field trip, take an aspirin in school, but not to get an abortion, you might live in a nation that was founded by geniuses and is run by idiots. Next. If you must show your identification to board an airplane, cash check, buy liquor, check out a library book, or rent a video, but not to vote for who runs the government, you might live in a nation founded by geniuses, but run by idiots. And then one of my favorites, if in the nation's largest city, you can buy two 16-ounce sodas, but not one 24-ounce soda, because it's against the law, because it might make you fat, you are definitely living in a nation. You know, founded by geniuses and run, at least in part, by idiots. So political correctness run rampant. Well, let's talk about crime, justice, and ethnic tension. And when I started this uh, preparation, I thought we'd spend most of our time talking about crime, but because of recent events, I think we'll spend our time talking a little bit more about justice, and I want to talk a little bit about ethnic tension in America. Uh, this is on your sheet. I wanted you just to seal recently what crime statistics, these are violent crimes, and I'm going to show you one that you don't have, but this is very interesting from 1960 until, I believe this ends in 2013, but that's a really interesting chart for violent crime. I mean, it's a good thing in the sense that, not that it peaked in 93, but it's a really good thing in that violent crime is on the decrease. In fact, the uh, Pew Center, I'll show you their comment on this, and it's right on. Compared with 93, which was the peak of gun homicides, firearm homicide rate 49% lower, half in 2010. Fewer deaths, even though the population is growing. Victimization rate for other violent crimes, etc., 75% lower in 2011 than 93. Uh, and also non-fatal crime victimization down 72% over two decades. So in a sense, the facts would say that we're moving the right direction with crime in America. I'm not saying that we don't have problems, don't misunderstand me, but the statistics and the data would show we're moving in the right direction, but I wanna make this observation. I don't think people feel like they're in a safer world. And so I wanna come back to this, I wanna go full circle on this, but I wanna talk about the difference between the feelings and the facts, because that, that dichotomy has everything to do with what's happening in our public square. But in general, crime in America is, by and large, moving in the right direction. It's moving downward. But people do not feel like our society is a safer place. In fact, most people, when you ask them, feel like it's more dangerous today than it has been, contrary to what the facts would show. So I'd like to talk a little bit about justice, the Bible's idea of justice, and I'm just gonna move through a few ideas. The Bible's idea of justice We'll talk about it as individuals, and then we'll talk about it as governments because God mandates governments. He mandates what a legitimate government looks like, and they have a role to play that involves justice. Then I want to talk a little bit about God's justice, talk about our role, government's role, and then really the vision that the Scripture gives of God's justice. First, I do want to talk about policing. Uh, in the context, you saw those crime statistics, those things don't happen without effective policing. Don't read that as a, a partisan statement in any way, but we're going to need to talk about that a little bit, but I wanted you to see this. Policing is an indispensable social service, and that is true. Its purpose is to protect a community from harm caused by its own members or individual visitors to our country. 
it's a security vital to individual flourishing and communal well-being. In other words, and this is very biblical, Miroslav Volf is a little bit of a liberal theologian, but definitely a Christian understanding the biblical command for flourishing and peace and justice. And some type of function, a policing function, is essential for that. It's a very legitimate thing to do. Well, let's talk about uh, the scriptures. I love this passage in Micah 6.8. It's coming from the Old Testament, one of those little books at the end, Minor Prophets. It's in the history of Israel, and God is saying to his people, you know, you've had the law of Moses. You follow the 613 commandments. I mean, they don't, but they have the rules, and they're trying to follow these rules, and they begin to realize that rightness with God, being right with God, being right with the world, being right with people has maybe a little bit less to do with just following the rules and more about the heart. It says, he has showed you what is good. What does the Lord really require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. This is what Jesus Christ 400 years after this is written, would personify. He would be God entering our world to show us what it looks like to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. The idea of liberty and justice for all has come back to our country. Liberty and justice for all and our Pledge of Allegiance is very much a biblical idea. And what I mean by that is this country borrows, has used, its ideals are very biblically based in our founding. Now, you, we can argue all day long about how Christian were our founders and were they deists, were they Christians, etc. Just set that aside for a minute. It's indisputable that our nation is founded on these biblical principles, and that's what liberty and justice for all is about. It's a very biblical idea. Now, if you watch an NFL game, right now you're going to find out there are people in America today who do not feel that that is true of this nation. And I want to talk about that in a little bit as far as our feelings versus our facts. But this is, as an individual, what God requires. Here's a great little passage in the New Testament. Because I also want to emphasize God doesn't want us just to be intellectually interested in justice. That's true. He wants us to be wise about administering justice and keeping peace. But listen to this. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The hard part of being a Christian is empathy and compassion. And I'm gonna to suggest to you that as much as we need wisdom in laws and procedures and courts and justice, we just as desperately need empathy and compassion to heal some of the issues in our country. So, as individuals, we are called to act justly, we're called to have empathy and compassion for everyone, because the remarkable thing about this passage is, it's not, hey, be empathetic and compassion to the really good people. Jesus is saying, have some compassion even on the people who are prisoners, and some of them are certainly legitimate prisoners. And so you just see this broad empathy and compassion. As far as the government, we've talked about this a little bit, but there's just a several proverbs. You find all over proverbs the idea of, uh, avoiding partiality, that uh, giving justice to the innocent, punishing wrongdoers, that all of these things make up God's mandate, God's vision for what a legitimate government is. And then we've talked about Romans chapter 13, which is one of the seminal texts that discusses God's mandate for what does a legitimate God-mandated government look like. 
He says to us, first of all, submit yourself to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. In other words, God is the author of all sovereignty. Now, he's not saying by that that God is approving. Remember when we talked about this? That doesn't mean God approves of all governments. It just means that government itself has a useful purpose to serve in God's redemptive story. The authorities exist have been established by God. You rebel against them, you rebel against God's plan. He says, rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Now he's describing what a legitimate government looks like. He said, God expects and requires a government to basically reward what is right and to discipline what is wrong. He's God's agent to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It's necessary to submit to the authorities. So you begin to see the role of peace. We talked about passages in 2 Peter and 2 Timothy that talk about the government's role in providing peace safety and security, and really justice and flourishing for its people. So a government that's in line with God's purposes is doing those things. We as Christians are going to be advocates and models in our nation to urge in every way that we can, whether it's with our donations or our rhetoric or our votes in the ballot box, to move our government to be in line with God's purposes. We're not voting to mandate that everybody be Christian. We simply see God's vision and what he expects governments to do to promote his purposes in the world, and we are going to advocate for that. We don't advocate for self-interest. We don't advocate for uh, give me what I want and push the other guy down. We don't advocate for go conquer a lot of countries so that we can have a lot of money. We advocate for God's purposes, peace, justice, and human flourishing. So that's what God expects and requires from governments. So let's talk for a moment about God's justice. I want to camp out on this just a little bit, and then we'll take some questions. You have, well, that's all right. Well, I want to camp out here just a little bit and talk about this. This is a really interesting idea. So we've talked about what God expects of us as individuals in terms of justice, what he expects of governments. But if you think about this, this is more than a social theory. What God is doing on a human cosmic scale is implementing real justice. This is an interesting quote because it's not that popular right now, certainly not in secular circles and even less, getting less so in Christian circles to understand the idea of judgment that just seems a little bit harsh to us. Wolf gets this right. He said, why is final judgment necessary? Why does the Bible, Jesus talked about judgment in the end times as much as he talked about anything else. We just don't typically quote those passages a lot. When you go to Mardell's, you don't usually see those on coffee cups, you know? But Jesus talked a lot about this idea of judgment, not because we have a vindictive God that just wants to smite some people. Judgment is essential because without it, if there is no ultimate justice from God, you have to either presume that all human beings, no matter how evil they are, are either just going to be overwhelmed with God's love and change their ways, which some Christians believe that. Unfortunately, over 8,000 years of recorded human history argues against it, and so does the Bible. But basically, you either are going to have to just come to their senses and be so overwhelmed by love they change their way, or they're going to realize that being evil isn't good for them either. And he says, you know, this belief is not much more than a modern superstition born out of the inability to look without flinching into the heart of darkness. So what is he saying here? He says, first of all, God's justice, I want to talk about four things that are true of God's justice. 
we as individuals and our governments are striving to be as just as God is. We will not be, but that is our vision, that's our goal. So what is the characteristic of God's judgment? First of all, God recognizes the reality of evil. God recognizes the reality of evil. It's not popular in secular circles to think that human beings are actually evil. There's something wrong with your circumstances. You're a victim of something. You were abused as a child. Uh, you know, your economic circumstances, your educational circumstances, all of those things have deprived you and therefore you behave in these ways. It's a very behavioral model of humanity as though we can control behavior by controlling environment. Those things make a difference, of course. I'm not going to argue that uh, some, well, I'm going to argue some of the commonly held tenets. But for example, in general, the better educated people are, the fewer violent crimes you see. That's just a general statistic. However, let me point out to you that most terrorists are pretty well educated people. Most terrorists are not poor people. What we are seeing in the world today doesn't match up with that thinking. God understands that, you know what, there's also just evil in the world. And the thing I'd like to point out to you on this is that evil, because we still don't want to get an us and them, evil doesn't have a skin color. Evil doesn't have a national identity. Evil doesn't have an ethnic identity. Evil is a tendency in the heart of fallen humanity. And we sometimes want to go, want to separate the good guys from the bad guys, want to separate the us and the them. But from God's perspective, and this is true, evil doesn't obey a national boundary, and it certainly doesn't obey a skin color or an ethnicity. Evil is something that, is, that affects everyone. Second thing is the image of God. Everyone is created in the image of God. And what that means is that everybody matters. This is, particularly if you happen to be on the left, it is extremely politically incorrect to say all lives matter. And I want to tell you that God thinks all lives matter. And I don't say that in a glib way. What I mean by that is it is a deep truth in Scripture. From the very first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible is that God cares deeply about everyone. There are not people who are created that are, you're in the image of God and you're subhuman in some way. That's not the message of the scripture. For God, every life matters. And both of these are true. There is evil in the world and every life matters. Everyone matters to God. Doesn't mean everybody's good. There's the reality of evil. It does not mean that everyone will respond to God, but it does mean that we, when we embrace people in the world, we're not called to say, we're superior, you're inferior. We're good, you're bad. We can call evil what it is, but God has an interest in every human. The third thing is, God is no respecter of persons. James chapter 2, that happens to be, I believe that's the topic for this Sunday sermon, but in James chapter 2, there's a nice little passage that talks about partiality. And basically what James says, God does not show partiality. In fact, he says when we show partiality, we're sinning. And what he means by partiality is that we are going to say rich people are better than poor people. 
or people with this skin color are better than people with that skin color. People who come from this country are better than people who come from that country. In other words, we violate that image of God when we set up these artificial systems of priorities, this partiality. We're going to give more justice to this person than that person. Unfortunately, you're going to see that play around a lot in our political environment. There's a great concern, and, and all Americans, by the way, Christian or non-Christian, it's just encoded in us, have a real problem when you see certain, typically in our culture, rich or powerful people who do things and get away with it, and others who are powerless or marginalized are punished for the same thing. It bothers all of us. There's a sense of fairness. Where do you think that comes from? That comes from the image of God in us. And so God is not a respecter of persons. You'll see that several times in the scripture. The truth is, this, this may be the part where, don't shoot the messenger, but I'm going to make, I really want you to think about this. The truth is that some people matter more than others in this imperfect society in which we live. And it is our duty as Christians to advocate for God's model of justice in a fallen world. The truth is, I'm not saying that's our intention, I'm not accusing you or me of anything, but the, if we look at our society, I think America's the greatest country in the world, but let's look at it honestly. Some people matter more in this country than others. And we as Christians, our voice should say, we live in a fallen world. We will never measure up to God's standard of justice in this world, but this is where we are going, and we want to advocate for that. In the midst of a fallen world, bring God's idea of justice. And then the fourth thing is God's story is all about redemption and restoration. It's also about judgment, isn't it? Well, how do you reconcile those two things? God's story always gives the hope and the offer of redemption and restoration. And what I mean by that is God doesn't see anyone as so far gone into evil that they cannot be restored. I'm not saying that they will be. I'm not saying that they will turn around and come back. But God hasn't written anyone off. The model for us is sometimes we look at people, and you've probably had this experience in your life, and you say, there's no way that person will ever become a Christian. There's no way that person will ever change. There's no way those terrorists will ever stop doing evil deeds. That may prove to be true in some cases, but God's view of humanity is such that we always offer hope. We always pray. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. I don't know if you thought about this, but I think we're supposed to pray for terrorists. We're not going to pray that they're successful. We're not going to pray that they continue to do what they do. We're going to pray, God, will you change those hearts? That mental exercise, that attitude is markedly different than what you're going to see in the rest of the world. It helps to keep us. Jesus did this because it's true, but he also did this because he knows that we need help so that we don't constantly divide the world into good guys, bad guys, us and them. The parable of the prodigal son, what that story is really about is really about the older brother. Everybody knows the prodigal son's a sinner. Everybody knows he's a bad guy in the story. And when he comes back home, that story's not saying he's all of a sudden a good guy. That story's about the older brother who says, I'm not giving him a second chance. He has changed his way, but you know what? I'm just mad because I'm a good guy, he's a bad guy. 
all those stories in the Bible are helping us to have the heart of God. That heart of God is very realistic. There's reality of evil. There's the reality of judgment. But it's always trying to soften us to have the hope of redemption and restoration. Those are the key things in God's view of justice. We live in an imperfect world, and we do not have that kind of justice. But that's what we advocate. We advocate it in basically taking our programs, our justice system, the laws that we have, our uh, prison system. We need to be forces that shape those policies in ways that move toward God's justice. Acknowledge the reality of evil. Acknowledge that government has a role to provide safety and security, but also enforce the idea of no one is hopeless, that can we restore people to the extent that we can, let's be interested in that. Does that make sense? In other words, God's vision of justice is more restorative than it is retributive. It's not about retribution as much as it is about restoration. Does that make sense? It's important to see what we're advocating for. And I think the scriptures give us a really clear view of God's sense of justice and what he's doing. Let me pause for a second. We'll see if we have uh, no questions. Good. This is going really well. You either really disagree or you really agree with me. Well, let's turn the corner for a second, and let's move on to a little more challenges. What we've done so far is we've talked about some factual things. What does crime look like in America? What does the Bible tell us about our sense of justice? In other words, God wants us to be interested in justice in the world, not just heaven. We're certainly interested in heaven, but he's like, I want you to go be agents to set the world right, too. I want you to be agents of justice in the world. He said, I want you to have compassion. I want you to have empathy even for the bad guys. He said, I loved you when you were a sinner. Jesus Christ said, I even died for you when you were a sinner. I want you to have a, a heart that cares about even the bad guys, if you will. The government, he says, look, I've got a role for governments to provide safety, to punish the wrongdoers, to provide security, to provide for human flourishing. Then let's go advocate for that. But I like to talk about this idea of facts and feelings just a little bit. Because most of the public dialogue that we have, and you've seen it in spades this week with, uh, with the shootings that we've had, the two tragic shootings in Tulsa last Friday and then Charlotte, North Carolina, what you see happening there is events are being shaped less by facts than they are by feelings. You tend to see in our political dialogue narratives being shaped typically less by facts and typically more by feelings. I'm not recommending this book to you, but I want to tell you an interesting story out of this book. This is a, an interesting book by a retired uh, sociologist from Berkeley. She is liberal in her ideology and in her politics, but she engaged on an interesting experiment a few years back and then wrote a book about it. What occurred to her one day is in looking at our political environment, looking at our public square, if you will, where the issues of our day are debated, she saw an awful lot of hostility and tension. And she said, look, I sit on this side, for her it'd be the left, and she said, I sit on this side and I'm tempted to have a great deal of hostility and really sh harsh debate with people who are on the other side. 
So what she decided to do was she spent uh, five years total, but four years interviewing people who didn't think like she thought, specifically Tea Party members. So this story is recounting how she would go interview and talk to people who thought very differently politically than she. She said, I learned to turn off my defenses, turn off my reactions, and instead of when I heard something reacting, like that's wrong, that's not true, she said just to, just to turn that off a little bit and listen. Now, don't misunderstand. She's not saying that this is going to solve our problem. She's not saying that, oh, we all ended up, you know, hugging each other, singing kumbaya around the campfire, and everybody agreed. She's not saying any of that. What she said was, is how do you connect in an emotional way with people? And so having a little empathy and compassion. Again, this isn't, she's not saying this is going to solve the problem, but it's a very interesting approach. And it's one that I think is, whether she realizes it or not, is rooted in, in some biblical ideas that we just talked about. Here's what she found. She interviewed, I believe she interviewed 40 or 50, but whatever, a lot of people. And then she began to construct what was it that they were experiencing emotionally that made them feel, I'm on the right, you're on the left. It's us and them, it's good guys and it's bad guys. And she could have done this with people on the left as well, but she chose people who were unlike her. So she went, she talked to them, she began to construct a model, a way to understand how they feel. And she went back to them and said, what do you think? Is this a good example? She constructed what she calls uh, a deep story or a deep narrative. But basically what it is, it's a metaphor to try to capture how people feel. Now listen to this picture. It's, it's really a great picture, but see if it characterizes to you. If you understand then how, in her view, uh, the American right feels about what's happening in this nation. She said, here's, here's basically a story that describes how you feel. Imagine yourself, you're standing in a very long line that's going up the side of this mountain. And at the top of that mountain up there, right up at the beginning of the line, way ahead of you, you can see the American dream. The American dream of safety, security, uh, having enough things, having happy family, let's call it human flourishing. In other words, having a, a quality of life. As Jesus said in John 10, 10, having the full life, real life. But you see that, called the American dream. And you see it at the top. But what you also see is you see people cutting in line up in front of you. And maybe it's a woman cutting in line up there is getting a job that you were in line for. Maybe it's someone of a different skin color who's up there who's, wait a minute, you, you just went halfway up the line in front of me. And you begin to get angry because you worked hard for this. You're standing in line. You worked hard to get here and move up. But that's not all. Then your president, Barack Obama, comes from the top of the line way up there and he yells to all those people that cut in line and he said, hey, you guys come on up to the front. And sure enough, all these people who've been cutting in line start going up to the front. And you say to yourself, well, you know what? He may be their president, but he's not my president. 
He's not interested in me. I worked hard to get here. I'm going for the dream. And he's calling all the line cutters up. And that's not the end of the story. As the line cutters start moving up, they turn around and say, see you later, you misogynistic, woman-hating, homophobic, racist, prejudiced, people who are holding on to your religions and guns. I don't know where that phrase came from. Anyway, it just sticks in my mind. But basically saying, see you later, you homophobes, you racists. Off we go up to the beginning of the line. She said, now that story with the people she interviewed said captures, in a sense, how they feel about what's happening in their country and what's happening in their life. That's really an astute observation. Now, whether you think that's a really perfect story or a perfect illustration or not, when I was telling you that story, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that we have a lot of conservative people uh, here tonight. Many of you were saying, whoa, that, that taps into some feelings of frustration or maybe anger or whatever it may be. And you go, yeah, I don't know that I necessarily think that way, but that describes kind of how I feel. That's what's shaping most of the narrative, most of the dialogue, and most of the response to events in America. Now, you're smart enough to realize every group has a story like that. In other words, if we pick someone on the far left or pick someone of a different ethnic group in America, pick someone who's in a Black Lives Matter uh, protest movement, pick someone who is an illegal immigrant in this country. In other words, everyone has some kind of metaphor, a picture, if you will, that can somehow explain how they feel. For some, it might be a story like, you know, I feel like I'm at a, this is a great uh, illustration used in a similar circumstance by a writer in the New York Times. It's just very well said. Said, I feel like I always have my nose pressed up against the glass, looking inside to people that have a good life, but never being welcome to come in. Maybe that's a narrative. Maybe that's a way of describing how some people feel in America. Does that make sense? I'm going to suggest to you that as important as the facts are, that's what's shaping most of the political dialogue. That's what's shaping a lot of our arguments and discussions around the idea of justice in America. Those are the kinds of things that are causing people to react. First thing I see in the news on the terror uh, issues, on the bombings and on the stabbings, first thing you see, before anybody even knows what happened, you begin to see camps start to happen. I mean, the first message from the mayor of New York was, we, this, is, this is another one of those politically incorrect things, while he's sipping his 16-ounce soft drink, because you can't buy a 24-ounce soft drink. This is what it said. We don't know what happened, but it's not terrorism. That's a Jeff Foxworthy quote right there. I mean, it's like, and then, of course, what do you see the next day? Yes, it is terrorism. Well, of course it's terrorism. But once we find the facts, you see that. But then you immediately see certain other people saying, there's Islamic terrorism again. This case, it happened to be true, but my point is not. My point is, those things happen immediately before the facts. 
these incredibly, and there are 29, if I remember my numbers right, 29 people hurt. One, I believe, very seriously in those. So this is not a small thing, but look how we react to that. It has nothing to do with the facts. The recent shootings, absolutely tragic. But before anything comes out in terms of facts, I learned a bunch of things today that I haven't heard in the news. I'm sure there are more facts coming out. I'm not saying that it doesn't mean there's right or wrong. There's a truth in this situation. But before that ever happened, you began to see narratives forming. You began to see the, this is police brutality, this is racism in America, and you began to see you know, the, another narrative and story before the facts come out. I think she's tapped into something powerful here, and that the idea is that a lot of what we're doing is shaped by these feelings. So, as Christians, as we go in to speak into the public square, we need to realize that we're not just speaking facts. We also have to acknowledge people's view of the world, whether it's rational or not. In fact, I would argue that no one's view of the other side, the them, whoever the they is, is 100% rational. That's just by its very nature. And so as we go speak into that, we need to acknowledge our feelings and as best we can, we need to see beyond the anger to the fears and the frustrations that shape it. I don't say that to justify it. I say if we're going to be effective in addressing it, anger to anger doesn't solve very many problems. Behind every one of these reactions is a set of feelings, whether they're rational or not, and we need to acknowledge those. And then we need to act on the basis of truth. Feelings are real and they are not dependable. And that, if, if you just want to boil it down, I'm going to argue that that's what's happening in our public square. Knowing that and taking our message as Christians to address both of those will make us far more successful in doing it. Question? Wow. I'm going to actually be finished on time for a change. Well, let me give you two thoughts then as far as what do we do with that? You know what the facts are about crime. We know that we have a justice system that's not perfect. This is a fallen world. But in general, if we will let these things work, we will get to the bottom of terrorism, corruption, uh, tragic uh, deaths, uh, crime. Our country is not perfect. It's a fallen world. And there are things we need to fix. Don't misunderstand me. But in general... We were talking uh, today, and, and this is really true. I don't imagine that anybody got up this morning and said, I think I'm going to go shoot somebody today. Now, please don't take that as a justification for anything. I'm simply saying that we need to be advocates for truth. It's hard to do justice until we know what the truth is. The second thing, though, is to not underestimate. And let me, make, let me put it this way. When we address people's feelings... Do not underestimate how powerful a force it is for ethnic and racial healing. Because America, we have both of these things going on. This isn't just a racial issue. I mean, that's an important issue. It's also an ethnic issue. Don't underestimate how powerful it is for ethnic and racial healing to hear confession and humility from the dominant social group. That makes sense? 
do not underestimate how powerful a force for healing it is to hear confession and humility from the dominant cultural group. And the church has to lead the way. Now, let me first tell you, because some of you are probably jumping like, surely you don't mean this. Well, let me tell you what I surely I don't mean. I don't mean confessing to things that you have not done. But I do mean, don't underestimate how powerful it is, is to confess the fact that, you know what? We have some problems in America. I think maybe some people matter more than others, and that's not God's way, and we're not okay with that. The simple acknowledging of that is going to have more profound effects for healing than you can imagine. And we in the church can be people who lead the way in that. Because many of us, certainly in this room, are part of the dominant social group in America. We are the largest cultural block in America. And I think God's call for empathy and compassion involves the idea of saying, you know what, I'd like to know what your story is. I'd like to know how you feel. I know you're angry, but when we can set that aside for a minute, I care about how you feel. I care about how you see the world. And you know what? I'm going to at least validate some of that and say, you know what? There are some things wrong here. I, I'm not telling you that that's just going to magically solve our problems, but don't underestimate how powerful a force for healing, a little humility, and a little confession will make. And then secondly, the thing that we take into the world for healing, you don't get healing by advocating for Certain lives matter and certain lives don't. And certain people need to have special treatment in order to substantiate past wrongs. Some of those things happen in our society, but I'm going to suggest to you that that is not. Partiality does not solve partiality. What unites us is we need something that's a bigger uniter than our ethnicity our different racial backgrounds, our, our different nationalist ideas. We need something that's a more powerful uniter than those things are dividers. Remember when we talked about multiculturalism? Living in my culture and my cultural background in the midst of a, of a different culture, multiculturalism is a dividing force. We talked about Europe, what's happening there. What we want to advocate is something that's a more powerful uniter than any of those things are dividers. And there's only one thing in the world that's a more powerful uniter, and that is the love of Jesus Christ. We want to go speak the unity of Jesus Christ. Now, again, let's think about what I don't mean. I don't mean that, well, if everybody will become a Christian, we won't have any problems. That's not my point. My point is simply, let's go pursue God's purposes in the world. Let's trust his truth to be a uniting force. When we as Christians put a face on poverty and we go care in just outrageous ways for people, when we as Christians are giving and loving even to the people who are the bad guys, when we visit people in prison, remember Jesus in Matthew 25? And he said, Lord, what did we do that, that you approve of? He said, well, you fed me when I was hungry, you clothed me. When I was cold and naked, you healed me when I was sick, you visited me when I was in prison. That's what it means to say Christians go love the world. I don't want you to think about that as some Pollyanna thing, like, oh, go have a warm feeling in your heart for humanity and drink a Coke and sing a song. You know, that's just, that's television stuff. The reality of that is, is 
Go be about God's purposes in a fallen world and forgive the unforgivable and love the unlovable and care about the people who are mad at you. In other words, when we go pursue that, I think you'll see that we trust God's truth to be a stronger uniting force than any of the other things that are trying to divide us. Well, I know that's a lot to talk about, and I would like you to let that sink in a little bit. But if you can walk away with even just one vision that would help us with the idea of justice, with racial tension, with ethnic tension, is let's go do the truthful things that God says to do. Let's go be about justice in the world. Let's go be about compassion and empathy in the world. Let's encourage our government to lock up people that do wrong and to reward people that do well, to keep its citizens safe, but to also be interested in redemption and restoration of people, to also care about people instead of treating them as subhuman. In other words, we're going to do all those things that are truthful in the world and let's recognize that everyone is really more processing these issues in their feelings than they are in their facts. And let's try to move past the anger and connect and understand how do you see the world. I think that's going to be a more powerful force uh, for healing than we think. It doesn't mean we agree. It just means that we care. I think that's going to do wonders. So your assignment this week, I still want you to be interested in poverty. Still want you to put a face on poverty, but I want us to be forces for healing in the world. And your assignment this week is I want you to find someone who disagrees with you. There may not be that many Democrats in this county. I'm, just, I'm joking. That's a joke. I want you to find somebody who disagrees with you. I don't want you to argue with them. Don't want you to think they're a project. Just want you to ask them and honestly turn off your defenses a little and just listen to what they say. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't expect that you will agree with them at the end. If you do, this backfired, right? I don't want you to necessarily agree. I just want you to establish a connection on a different level. So find somebody with whom you disagree on some political issue and just listen to them, okay? I don't know what's going to happen on this one, all right? But we'll see. But let's reach out and try to find a little common ground on an emotional level. Next, here's a question you've probably been wondering about. Is it possible to be Christian and be a politician? Hey, that's a serious question. A lot of people go, you know what? All politicians are fill in the blank. How can you be a Christian and be involved in pol politics? We're going to ask some next week. So I'll see you then, and let's see what they say.